Hey everyone, thank you for listening to Black Clock Audio Tales. This is week one of Jules Verne, and we've got Castle of the Carpathians. Uh, you know, it may have inspired the topography for Bram Stoker's Dracula. I mean, it very likely could have, and you know, not a lot of stuff happened in Transylvania and literature, and you know, I'm pretty sure Bram Stoker probably read this. But hey, uh, how about the fact that we're doing Jules Verne all month long? And after that, we're going to be doing the uh, Underground City, Mysterious Island, uh, that one about the moon and the one about the Antarctic of Jules Verne this month. We're probably going to have some experts on the show talking about Jules Verne and talking about Jules Verne's influence on literature and fiction and science fiction for sure. And yeah, yeah, it's going to be a cool, fun time. And you know what you should do? If you like the show, you should let us know by going to Facebook.com, look for Black Clock Audio Tales or People's Guide to the Cthulhu Mythos if that's the one you like better. And let us know that you like the show. Review us, rate us, whatever. Let people know that we're out there. Share us. Tell people about it. Be like, you know what? The announcer guy kind of sucks, but if you skip ahead, probably about like, I don't know, I'm guessing about three minutes, you'll get to the story. You can start listening to it. And sometimes he pipes in for commercials, but hey, you know what? It's free. So you know what? Let people know it's free and that I'm not going to put up a paywall. And that... People's Guide to the Cthulhu Mythos, Black Clock Audio Tales, is a weekly podcast, but we put out enough every week that you've got stuff all week long. I ran out of stuff all week long, and then I remembered, oh shoot, I've got that post stuff that I edited last week that's coming up today, and then I was like, awesome. And then I remembered I also had some unspooled to listen to, but I'll talk about that. No, no I won't. I don't talk about other podcasts on my podcast. Anyway, so thank you for listening to this podcast. And also, I do talk about other podcasts. You can check out um, Dave's Corner of the Universe bits and segments that we do here. Hopefully sooner than later, we'll have Dave's Underground Goat Shenanigans. And we've got Black Clock Audio Tales, which you're listening to right now. We do special segments from time to time with folks like Ken Hyde or Andrew Migliori or Andrew Grace or... um, Let's see, sometimes we get David Heath to talk about stuff, and sometimes we're lucky enough to get uh, Scott Glancy. We've had Rossi Lockhart from Word Horde, and we've even had Rodney Anonymous from the Dead Milkman on the show. So check us out, pgttcm.com, for all the back episodes. Here we go. Recording by Joe Denoya, Somerset, New Jersey. The family of the Counts of Telec was one of the most ancient and illustrious in Romania having been of considerable importance there before the country conquered its independence in the beginning of the 16th century. With all the political movements which abound in the history of these provinces, the name of the family is gloriously connected. Less favored than the famous beach of the castle of the Carpathians, which still possessed three branches, the house of Telec was now reduced to one, that of Telec of Krajawa, whose last offspring was the young gentleman who had just arrived at the village of Worst. During his infancy, he had never left the patrimonial castle where the Count and Countess of Telec lived. The descendants of the family were held in great esteem in the country, where they spent their wealth generously. Living the liberal, easy life of the country nobility, it was seldom that they left the estate of Krajawa more than once a year, and that when business took them to the town of that name, which was only a few miles away. This kind of life had of necessity an influence on the education of their only son, 
and for long afterwards, Franz felt the effects of the surroundings amid which his childhood had passed. His only tutor was an old Italian priest, who could only teach him what he knew, and he did not know much. And so, when the boy had become a young man, he had but a very inadequate knowledge of science, or art, or contemporary literature. To be an enthusiastic sportsman, afoot night and day through the forest and on the plains, hunting the stag and the wild boar, and attacking the wild beasts of the mountains, knife in hand, such were the ordinary pastimes of the young Count, who, being very brave and very resolute, accomplished wonders in these rough occupations. The Countess of Telec died when her son was scarcely fifteen, and he was only one in twenty when his father died in a hunting accident. The grief of young Franz was extreme. As he had wept for his mother, he wept for his father, who had just been taken away from him, one after the other, within those few years. All his tender feelings and the affectionate impulses of his heart were then centered in his filial love which had been sufficient for him during his childhood and youth. But when his love failed him, having no friends and his tutor being dead, he found himself alone in the world. For three years the young Count remained at the castle of Kujawa. He could not make up his mind to leave it. He lived there without seeking to make any acquaintances outside. Once or twice he had been to Bucharest, but that was because certain matters obliged him to go there, and these were but short absences, for he was in haste to return to his domain. This life could not, however, last forever, and Franz began to feel the want of enlarging the horizon which was so restricted by Romanian mountains, and he wished to fly beyond it. The young Count was about twenty-three years old when he made up his mind to travel. His wealth enabled him to fully gratify his wishes. One day he left the castle of Kujawa to his old servants and left the Wallachian country. He took with him Rotsko, an old Romanian soldier who had been for ten years in the family and who had been a young Count's companion in all his hunting expeditions. He was a man of courage and resolution, entirely devoted to his master. The young Count's intention was to visit Europe and to stay a few months in the capitals and important towns of the continent. He considered, not without cause, that his education, which had only begun at the castle of Kujawa, might be completed by what he learned on the carefully planned tour. It was to Italy that Franz de Telec wished to go first, for he could speak Italian fairly well, the old priest having taught him. The attraction of this country, so rich in memories, was such that he stayed there four years. He only left Venice to go to Florence. He left Rome but to go to Naples, constantly returning to these artistic centers, from which he could not tear himself away. France, Germany, Spain, Russia, England, he would see later on. He would even study them to better advantage, so it seemed to him, when age had matured his ideas. On the other hand, he must be in all the effervescence of youth to enjoy the charms of the great Italian cities. Franz de Telec was 27 when he went to Naples for the last time. He intended to spend only a few hours there before leaving for Sicily. By the exploration of the ancient Trinacria, he proposed to end his tour, and then return to his castle of Crajoa and have a year's rest. An unexpected circumstance not only changed his plans, but decided his life and changed its course. During the few years he had lived in Italy, the young Count had not learned much of the sciences, for which he had felt no aptitude, but the sense of the beautiful had been revealed to him like light to a blind man. With his mind widely opened to the splendors of art, he had become enthusiastic over the masterpieces of painting and visiting the galleries of Naples, Rome, and Florence. At the same time, the theaters had made him acquainted with the lyric works of the time, and he became powerfully interested in their interpretation by the great artists. It was during his stay at Naples, and under circumstances we are about to relate, that a sentiment of a more personal character, of more intense penetration, took possession of his heart. 
There was then at the theater of San Carlo a celebrated singer whose pure voice, finished method, and dramatic ability had won the admiration of all the dilettanti. Up to then, La Stilla had never sought the applause of foreigners, and had never sung any other music than Italian, which then held the first place in the heart of composition. The Carnegie Theater at Turin, the Scala at Milan, the Venice at Venice, the Alfieri at Florence, the Apollo at Rome, the San Carlo at Naples, introduced her in turn, and her triumphs left her no room for regret that she had not appeared at the other theaters of Europe. La Stilla, then aged five and twenty, was a woman of ideal beauty, with her long golden hair, the ardor of her deep black eyes, the purity of her complexion, and a figure which the chisel of Paraxitellus could not have made more perfect. And this woman had become a sublime artiste, another Malibran of whom Musset could also say, and thy songs in the skies bore away sorrow. But this voice, which was the most adored of poets had celebrated in the immortal stanzas, that voice of the heart which only finds the heart, that voice was Lestilla's in all its inexpressible magnificence. However, this incomparable prima donna, who reproduced with such perfection the accents of tenderness, the fury of the passions, the most powerful feelings of the soul, had never, so they said, experienced their effect. Never had she loved, never had her eyes responded to the thousand looks which were concentrated on her on the stage. It seemed that she lived but for her art, and only for her art. The first time he saw Listilla, Franz experienced that irresistible ardor which is the essence of a first love, and he gave up his plan on leaving Italy after visiting Sicily, and resolved to remain at Naples until the close of the season. As if some invisible bond he could not break had attached him to the singer, he was at all the performances, with the enthusiasm of the public converted into veritable triumphs. Many times, incapable of mastering his passion, he had tried to obtain access to her house, but Lestilla's door remained as pitilessly closed against him as against so many other fanatic admirers. And so it came about that the young Count became the most to be pitied of men, always in sight of his love, thinking only of the great artiste, living but to see her and hear her. He sought no longer to make friends in the world to which his name and fortune called him. Soon this excitement so increased with Franz that his health was in danger. We can imagine that he might have suffered if he had had to bear the tortures of jealousy if Lestilla's heart had belonged to another. But the young Count had no rival, as he knew, and none can give him umbrage, not even of a certain peculiar personages, of whose appearance and character our story requires more notice. He was a man between 50 and 55 at the time France de Telec last went to Naples. This incommunicative individual apparently strove to live outside the social conventionalities that prevailed in the higher circles. Nothing was known of his family, his position, his past life. He was met with today at Rome, tomorrow at Florence, provided that Lestilla was at Florence or at Rome. In fact, he lived but to listen to the renowned singer, who then occupied the foremost place in the art of song. If Franz de Telec had only lived in a delirium of his idolatry for Lestilla since the day he had applauded her, or rather had he seen her on a stage at Naples, this eccentric dilettante had been following her for about six years. But he was not like the young Count. In his case, it was not the woman, but the voice which had become so necessary to his life as the air he breathed. Never had he sought to see her except on stage. Never had he called at her house or attempted to write to her. But every time Lestilla appeared in no matter what theater of Italy, there passed in among the audience a man of tall stature, wrapped in a long dark overcoat and wearing a large hat which hid his face. This man would hurry to his seat in a private box previously engaged for him, 
and there he would remain, silent and motionless, throughout the performance. But as soon as Lestilla had finished her last air, he would go away furtively, and no other singer would detain him. He had not even heard them. Who was the spectator so strangely assiduous at these performances? Lestilla had in vain sought to know, and being of a very impressionable nature, she had become quite frightened at this curious man, an unreasonable terror, but still a real one. Although she could not see him in the back of the box, she knew he was there. She felt his look imperiously fixed on her, and, greatly troubled by his presence, she no longer heard the cheers with which the public welcomed her appearance on the scene. We have said that this personages had never approached Lestilla. Nothing could be truer. But if he had not tried to make her acquaintance, and we must particularly insist on this point, all that could remain to him of the artiste had been the object of constant attention. Thus he possessed the finest of the portraits which the great painter Michael Gregorio had made of the singer. This was, indeed, Lestilla impassioned, vibrating, sublime, incarnate, in one of her finest characters, and the portrait acquired for its price in gold was well worth the price her wealthy admirer had paid for it. If this eccentric individual was invariably alone when he occupied his box during Lestilla's performances, if he never went out of his rooms but to go to the theater, it must not be supposed that he lived in absolute isolation. No, a companion no less eccentric shared his existence. This individual was known as Orphanic. How old was he? Whence came he? Where was he born? No one could have answered those three questions. To listen to him, for he was only too glad to talk, he was one of those unrecognized geniuses who have taken an aversion to the world. And it was supposed, and not without reason, that he was some poor devil of an inventor who was chiefly supported by the purse of his protector. Orphanic was of middle height, thin, sickly, consumptive, and pale. He was remarkable for a black patch over his right eye, which he had lost in some experiment, and on his nose was a pair of spectacles, the only lens being that over his left eye, which glowed with a greenish look. During his solitary walks, he gesticulated as if he were talking to some invisible being who listened without ever answering. These two characters, the strange melomaniac and the no less strange orphanic, were known, at least as much as they wished to be, in all the towns of Italy to which the theatrical season regularly took them. They had the privilege of exciting public curiosity, and although the admirer of Lestilla had always repulsed the reporters and their indiscreet interviews, they had at last discovered his name and nationality. He was of Romanian birth, and the first time Franz de Telec asked who he was, they told him, the Baron Rodolphe de Gortz. Such was the state of affairs when the young Count arrived at Naples. For two months, the theater of San Carlo had been full, and the success of Lestilla grew greater every evening. Never had she done herself more justice than their different characters. Never had she called forth more enthusiastic ovations. At each performance, while Franz occupied his orchestra, the Baron de Gortz sat at the back of his box, absorbed in his ideal song, impregnated with his divine voice, without which it seemed he could not live. It was then that a rumor spread at Naples, a rumor the public refused to believe, but which eventually alarmed the dilettanti. It was said that at the close of the season, Lestilla was going to retire from the stage. What, in all the possession of her talent, and in all the plentitude of her beauty, in the apogee of her artistic career, was it possible she thought of retiring? Unlikely as it seemed, it was true, and undoubtedly, the Baron de Gortz had something to do with her resolve. This spectator, with his mysterious proceedings, always there, although invisible behind the railing of his box, had at length provoked in Lestilla a nervous, persistent emotion which she could not overcome. Whenever she came on the stage, she felt an influence come over her, 
and the excitement, which was apparent enough to the public, had gradually injured her health. To leave Naples, to fly to Rome, to Venice, or to some other town of the peninsula would not, she knew, deliver her from the presence of Baron de Gortz. She would not even escape him by abandoning Italy for Germany, Russia, or France. He would follow her wherever she made herself heard, and to deliver herself from this besetting importunity, her only chance was to abandon the stage. Two months before the rumor of her retirement had been heard, Franz de Telec had taken a step with regard to the singer, the consequences of which were to be an irreparable catastrophe. Free to do as he liked, and master of an immense fortune, he had succeeded in obtaining admission to Lestilla's house, and had made her the offer of becoming Countess of Telec. Lestilla had long known of the feelings with which she had inspired the young Count. She had said to herself that he was a gentleman to whom any woman, even of the highest rank, would be happy to trust her life and happiness. And in the state of mind that she was then, when Franz de Telec offered her his name, she received the offer with a sympathy and took no pains to hide. She felt herself loved in such a way that she consented to become the wife of Count Telec, and without regret abandoned her dramatic career. The news was then true. Lestilla would not appear again on any stage, as soon as the San Carlos season came to an end. In fact, her marriage, of which there had been some suspicions, was announced as certain. This, as may be imagined, caused considerable excitement not only in the professional world, but in the fashionable world of Italy. After refusing to believe in the realization of this project, they had to admit it. Hatred and jealousy rose against the young Count, who was to take her away from her art, her success, the idol tree of the dilettanti, the greatest singer of her age. Even personal threats were directed against Franz de Telec, which threats in no way troubled him. But if it was thus with the public, we can imagine what Rudolf de Gortz felt at the thought of losing Lestilla, and that he would lose with her all that was life to him. There was a rumor that he was about to commit suicide. It was certain that from this day, Orphanic was not seen in the streets of Naples. He never left Baron Rudolph. Many times he was with him in the box, which the Baron occupied at every performance. And that he had never done before, being, like other learned men, absolutely refractory to the sensual charms of music. The days, however, went by. The excitement did not subside, and it was at its height the last time Lestilla was to appear on the stage. It was in the superb character of Angelica in Orlando, the masterpiece of Arcanati, that she was to bid her farewell to the public. That night, San Carlo was but a tenth large enough to hold the people who crowded at its doors, and for the most part, remained outside. It was feared that there would be a manifestation against Count de Telec, if not while Lestilla was on the stage, at least when the curtain fell on the last act. The Baron de Gortz had taken his place in his box, and this time Orphanic was again with him. Lestilla appeared, more agitated than she had ever been. She recovered herself, however. She abandoned herself to her inspiration, and sang with such perfection, such ineffable talent, that the indescribable enthusiasm she excited among the audience rose almost to delirium. During the performance, the young Count waited at the wing, impatient, nervous, feverish, cursing the length of the scenes, and angry at the delays provoked by the applause and recalls. Ah, how they hindered him from carrying off from this theater her who was to be the Countess of Telec, the adored woman he would take far, far away, so far that she would belong but to him, and to him alone. At last came the final most dramatic scene in which the heroine of Orlando dies. Never had the admirable music of Arcanati appeared more impressive. Never had Lestilla interpreted it with more impassioned emphasis. All her soul seemed to distill itself through her lips. And yet one would have said that this voice was about to break, for it was to be no longer heard. At this moment, the railing of Baron de Gort's box was lowered. Over it there appeared that strange head, 
with the long, grizzled hair and the eyes of flame. It showed itself, that ecstatic face, frightful in its parlor, and from the wing, Franz saw it in the light for the first time. Lestilla was then reveling in the full power of that ravishing strato in the final air. She had just repeated that phrase with a sublime sentiment, Inamorata, mio cuore tremante, voglia mori. Suddenly she stopped. Baron de Gortz's face terrified her. An inexplicable terror paralyzed her. She put her hand to her mouth. It reddened with blood. She staggered. She fell. The audience rose, trembling, bewildered, distracted. A cry escaped from Baron de Gortz's box. Franz rushed onto the stage. He took Lestilla in his arms. He lifted her. He looked at her. He called her. Dead. Dead, he cried. She is dead. Yes, Lestilla was dead. A blood vessel had broken. Her song died with her last sigh. The young Count was taken back to his hotel in such a state that his reason was despaired of. He was unable to be present at Lestilla's funeral, which took place amid an immense crowd of the Neapolitan population. It was at the cemetery of Campo Santo Nuovo that the singer was buried, and all that could be read on the marble was Stilla. The night of the funeral, a man went to the Campo Santo Nuovo. There, with haggard eyes, bowed head, and lips clenched as if they had been sealed by death, he looked for a long time at the spot where Lestilla lay, and he seemed to listen as if the voice of the great artiste was to be heard for the last time from her grave. It was Rodolphe de Gortz. That very night, the Baron de Gortz accompanied by Orphanic, left Naples, and no one knew what became of him. But the next morning a letter was received by the young Count. The letter contained but these words. It is you who have killed her. Woe to you, Count de Tlec. Rodolphe de Gortz. End of chapter 9 The Count awoke at dawn, his mind still troubled with the visions of the night. In the morning he was to leave the village of Worst on the road to Kosovar. After visiting the manufacturing towns of Petrozny and Lividzel, Franz's intention was to stay an entire day at Carlsberg, before stopping some time in the capital of Transylvania. From there, the railway would take him across the provinces of central Hungary, where his journey would end. Franz had left the inn, and, walking on the terrace with his field glass to his eyes, he was examining with deep emotion the outlines of the castle, which the sun was showing up so clearly on the Orgal Plateau. And his reflections bore on this point, when he reached Carlsberg, would he keep the promise he had made to the people of Worst? Would he inform the police of what had happened at the castle of the Carpathians? When the young count had undertaken to restore peace to the village, he had no doubt but the castle was the refuge of some gang of criminals, or at least of people of doubtful repute, who, having some interest in not being sought after, had taken steps to prevent anyone approaching them. But since the previous day, Franz had been thinking the matter over. A change had come over his thoughts, and he now hesitated. For five years, the last descendant of the family of Gortz, Baron Rudolph, had disappeared, and what had become of him, no one knew. Doubtless, rumor had said he was dead a short time after his departure from Naples. But was that true? What proof had they of his death? Perhaps the Baron de Gortz was alive, and if he lived, why should he not have returned to the castle of his ancestors? Why should not Orphanic, his only familiar friend have accompanied him. And why should not this strange physician be the author and manager of these phenomenon which caused such terror in the country? It will be admitted that this hypothesis appeared somewhat plausible, and if Baron Rodolphe de Gortz and Orphanic had taken refuge in the castle, 
It was natural that they would try to make it unapproachable, so as to live that life of isolation which was in accordance with their habits and characters. If this were the case, what ought the Count to do? Was it desirable that he should interfere in the private affairs of the Baron de Gortz? This he was asking himself, weighing the pros and cons of the question, when Rothko came to rejoin him on the terrace. When he had told him of what he had been thinking, Master, replied Rothko, it is possible that this may be the Baron de Gortz who is giving himself over to every diabolic imagination. Well, if that is so, my advice is not to mix yourself up with his affairs. The poltroons of worst will get out of their difficulty in their own way. That is their business, and we have no reason for troubling ourselves about bringing peace to this village. Quite so, said Franz, and all things considered, I think you are right in my brave Rotsko. I think so, said Rotsko simply. As to Master Colts and the others, they now know what to do to finish up with the pretended spirits at the castle. Undoubtedly, all they have to do is tell the Carlsberg police. We will start after breakfast. All will be ready. But before we return down the valley of the sill, we will go around towards Plaza. And why? I wish to see this castle of the Carpathians a little nearer, if possible. For what purpose? Fancy, Rotsko, a mere fancy, which will not delay us half a day. Rotsko was much annoyed at this decision, which he looked upon as useless. All it could do would be to recall the memory of the past, which he tried his best to avoid. This time he tried in vain, and he had to yield to his master's inflexible resolution. Franz, as if he had become subject to some irresistible influence, felt himself drawn toward the castle. Without his being aware of it, this attraction might be due to the dream in which he had heard the voice of Lestilla murmur the plaintive melody of Stefano. But had he been dreaming? Yes, that is what he was asking himself now that he remembered that he was in the same room of the King Matthias, a voice had already made itself heard. That voice which Nick Deck had so imprudently defied. In the Count's mental condition, there was nothing surprising in this forming a plan of going to the castle. In the Count's mental condition, there was nothing surprising in his forming the plan of going to the castle, to the foot of its wall, without any thought of entering. Franz de Telec had, of course, no intention of telling the inhabitants a worst of his journey. These people would doubtless have joined Rotsko in dissuading him from approaching the castle, and he had ordered his man to be silent regarding it. When they saw him descending the village toward the Valley of the Sill, everybody imagined that they were on their way to Carlsberg, but from the terrace he had remarked that another road skirted the base of Redizet up to the Vulcan. It would thus be possible to climb the ridge of Plesa toward the castle without passing again through the village, and consequently without being seen by Master Colts or the others. About noon, having settled without discussion the somewhat inflated bill which Jonas presented to the accompaniment of his best smile, Franz prepared to leave Worst. Master Colts, the fair Muriota, Magister Hermid, Dr. Patak, the shepherd Frick, and a number of the other inhabitants had come to bid him farewell. The young forester had even left his room, and it was clear enough would soon be on his legs again, for which the doctor took all the honor to himself. I congratulate you, Nick Deck, said Franz to him, both you and your betrothed. We are much obliged to you, said the girl, radiant with happiness. May your journey be fortunate, added the forester. Yes, may it be so, replied Franz, though his forehead was a little clouded. Monsieur le Comte, said Master Colts, we beg that you will not forget the information you promised to give at Carlsberg. I will not forget it, Master Colts, replied Franz. But should I be delayed on my journey, you know the very simple means of disembarrassing yourselves of your troublesome neighbors, and the castle will soon inspire no fear among the brave people of Worst. That is easily said, murmured the Magister. 
and easily done, replied Franz. Before 48 hours, if you like, the police will have settled up with whoever is hiding in the castle. Except in the very probable case that they are spirits, said the shepherd Frick. Even then, said Franz, slightly shrugging his shoulders. Monsieur le Comte, said Dr. Patak, if you had accompanied me and Nick Deck, you might not talk about them as you do. I should be astonished if I did not, replied Franz, even if, like you, I had been so strangely detained by the feet in the castle ditch. By the feet, yes, Count, or rather, by the boots. Unless you suppose that it is my state of mind, I dreamt. I suppose nothing, said Franz, and will not try to explain what appears inexplicable. But be assured that the gendarmes come to visit the castle of the Carpathians, their boots, which are accustomed to discipline, will not take root like yours. And with that parting shot at the doctor, the Count received for the last time the respects of the innkeeper of the King Matthias. So honored to have had the honor of the Honorable Franz de Telec, etc. After a salute to Master Colts, Nick Deck, his betrothed, and the inhabitants in the road, he made a sign to Rotsko, and both set out at a good pace down the road. In less than an hour, Franz and his man had reached the right bank of the river, which flowed round the southern base of Regizet. Rotsko had made up his mind to make no observation to his master. It would have been useless to have done so. Accustomed to obey him in military style, if the young Count met with some perilous adventure, he would know how to get out of it. After two hours walking, Franz and Rotsko stopped for a short rest. At this place, the Wallachian sill, which had been curving gently towards the right, approached the road by rather a sharp turn. On the other side was the Plesa and the Orgal Plateau at the distance of about a league. Franz then had to leave the sill if he wished to cross the hill in the direction of the castle. Evidently, this roundabout way, chosen for the purpose of avoiding a return through Worst, must have doubled the distance which separated the castle from the village. Nevertheless, it was still broad daylight when Franz and Rotsko reached the crest of the Orgal Plateau. The young count would thus have time to see the castle from the outside. Then he would wait until evening before going back towards Worst, and it would be easy to follow the road without being seen. Franz's intention was to pass the night at Livensdale, a little town situated at the confluence of the Sills, and to resume the road to Carlsberg in the morning. The halt lasted half an hour. Franz, deep in his remembrances, much agitated at the thought that Baron de Gortz had perhaps concealed his existence in this castle, said not a word. And Rotsko had to make a great effort to keep from saying to him, It is useless to go further, master. Turn your back on this cursed castle and let us be off. They began to follow the foul leg of the valley. But first they had to cross a thicket in which there was no footpath. Patches of the ground had been deeply cut into, for in the rainy season the sill frequently overflows, and flows in tumultuous torrents over the ground, which it converts into marsh. This caused some difficulty in the advance, and consequently some delay, and it took an hour to get back on the Vulcan Road, which was reached about five o'clock. The right flank of Plesa is not covered with the forest, such as Nick Deck had to cut his way through with an axe, but its difficulties were of another kind. There were heaps of moraines, among which they could not venture without caution. Sudden changes of level, deep excavations, great blocks dangerously unsettled on their bases and standing up like the seracs of the alpine regions. All the confusion of piles of enormous stones which avalanches had precipitated from the summit of the mountain. In fact, a veritable chaos in all its horror. To climb a slope like this took a good hour's hard work. It seemed indeed that the castle of the Carpathians was sufficiently defended by the impracticability of its approaches, and perhaps Rothko hoped that there would be obstacles it would be impossible to surmount, although there were none. Beyond the zone of blocks and hollows, the outer crest of the Orgal Plateau was eventually reached. From there, the outline of the castle was clear enough in the midst of this mournful desert, from which for so many years fear had kept away the natives of the district. 
It should be noticed that Franz and Rotsko had approached the castle on its northern face. Nick Deck and Dr. Patak had attacked it on the east by taking the left of the plaza and leaving the torrent of Nyad to the right. The two directions formed a somewhat wide angle, of which the apex was the central dungeon. On the northern side it was impossible to obtain admittance, for there was neither gate nor drawbridge, and the wall, in following the irregularities of the plateau, ran to a considerable height. But it mattered little that access was impossible on this side, for the young count had no intention of entering within the walls. It was half past seven when Franz de Telec and Rotsko stopped at the extreme end of the Orgal Plateau. Before them rose this barbaric pile of buildings spread out in the gloom and of much the same color as that of the Plesser Rocks. To the left, the wall made a sudden bend, flanked by the bastion at the angle. There, on the platform above the crenellated parapet, stood the beach, whose twisted branches bore witness to the violent southwesterly breezes at this height. The shepherd Frick was not deceived. The legend gave but three more years of life to the old castle of the Barons of Gortz. Franz, in silence, looked at the mass of buildings dominated by the stumpy dungeon in the center. There, without doubt, under that confused mass, were still hidden vaulted chambers long and sonorous, long dandelion corridors, and redoubts concealed in the ground such as old Magyar fortresses still possess. No dwelling could have been more fit for the last descendant of the family of Gortz to bury himself in oblivion, of which none knew the secret. And the more the young Count thought, the more he clung to the idea that Rodolphe de Gortz had taken refuge in the isolation of his castle of the Carpathians. But there was nothing to show that the dungeon was inhabited. No smoke rose from its chimneys, no sound came from its closed windows. Nothing, not even the cry of a bird, troubled the silence of the gloomy dwelling. For some minutes, Franz eagerly gazed at this ring of wall, which once was full of the tumult of festival and the clash of arms, but he said nothing, for his mind was laden with oppressive thoughts and his heart with remembrances. Rotsko, who respected the young Count's mournful silence, took care to keep away from him and did not interrupt him by a single remark. But when the sun went down behind the shoulder of the plaza and the valley of the two sills began to be bathed in shadow, he did not hesitate to approach him. Master, he said, the evening has come. It will soon be eight o'clock. Franz did not appear to hear. It is time to start, said Rotsko, if we are to reach Livensdale before the inns close. Rotsko, in a minute. Yes, in a minute. I will go with you, said Franz. It will take us quite an hour, master, to return to the hill road, and as the night will then have fallen, we shall run no risk of being seen. A few minutes more, said Franz, and we will go down toward the village. The Count had not moved from the spot he had stopped at when he reached the plateau. Do not forget, Master, continued Rotsko, that in the dark it will be difficult to pass among the rocks. We can hardly do it in broad daylight. You must excuse me if I insist. Yes, we will go, Rotsko, I am with you. And it seemed as though Franz was helplessly detained before the castle, perhaps by one of those secret presentiments which the heart cannot account for. Was he, then, chained to the ground like Dr. Patak said he had been in the ditch at the foot of the curtain? No. His feet were free from every fetter. He could move about on the plateau as he chose, and, if he wished, nothing could have prevented him from going round the wall, skirting the edge of the counterscarp. Perhaps he would do so. So thought Rotsko, who said for the last time, Are you coming, master? Yes, yes, replied Franz. And he remained motionless. The Orgal Plateau was already in darkness. The shadow of the hills had spread over the buildings whose outlines were all vague and misty. Soon nothing would be visible if no light shone from the windows of the dungeon. Come, master, come, said Rotsko, and Franz was about to follow him when on the platform of the bastion where stood the legendary beach, 
there appeared an indistinct shape. Franz stopped, looking at the shape, whose outline gradually became clearer. It was a woman with her hair undone, her hands stretched out, enveloped in a long white robe. But this costume, was it not that which Lestilla wore in the final scene in Orlando, in which Franz de Telec had seen her for the last time? Yes, and it was Lestilla, motionless, with her arms stretched out toward the young count, her penetrating gaze fixed on him. She! he cried and rushing towards the ditch he would have rolled to the foot of the wall if Rothko had not stopped him. But the apparition suddenly faded, and Lestilla was hardly visible for a minute. Little did it matter. A second would have sufficed for Franz to recognize her, and these words escaped him. She, and alive! End of chapter 11 Lestilla, whom Franz de Telec thought never to see again, had just appeared on the platform of the bastion, he had not been the sport of illusion, and Rotsko had seen her as he had done. It was indeed the great artiste in her costume of Angelica, such as she had worn in public at her last performance at San Carlo. The terrible truth flashed across the young Count. This adored woman, who was to have been the Countess of Telec, had been shut up for five years in this castle amid the Transylvanian mountains. She, who Franz had seen fall dead on the stage, had survived. While he had been carried almost dying to the hotel, the Baron Rodolf must have found her and carried her off to the castle of the Carpathians, and it was an empty coffin that the whole population had followed to the Santo Campo Nuevo of Naples. It all appeared incredible, inadmissible, contrary to probability, and Franz said to himself over and over again, yes, but one thing is indubitable. Lestilla must have been carried off by the Baron de Gortz, for she was in the castle. She was alive, for she had just appeared above the wall. That was an absolute fact. The young Count endeavored to collect his thoughts, which were centered on one single object, to rescue from Rodolphe de Gortz Lestilla, who for five years had been a prisoner in the castle of the Carpathians. Rothko, said Franz in a breathless voice, listen to me. Understand me at last. It seems as though my brain were going, my master, my dear master. At all costs, I must enter this castle this very night. No, tomorrow. This night, I tell you, she is there. She has seen me as I saw her. She's waiting for me. Well, I will follow you. No, I go alone. Alone? Yes. But how can you get into the castle when Nick Deck was not able to? I will go in, I tell you. The gate is shut. It will not be for me. I will seek for and I will find a breach. I will get through it. You do not wish me to accompany you, Master? You do not wish it? No, we will separate, and it is by leaving me that you will serve me. Shall I wait for you here? No, Rotsko. Where shall I go, then? To worst, or rather, no, not to worst, replied Franz. There would be no use in those people knowing. Go down to Vulcan and stay the night there. If you do not see me, leave Vulcan in the morning. That is to say, no, wait a few hours, then go to Carlsberg. There go to the chief of police. Tell him all that has happened, then return with his men. If necessary, storm the castle, deliver her. Ah, she, alive, in the power of Rodolphe de Gortz. And as the young count uttered these broken sentences, Rotsko noticed that his excitement increased and manifested itself in the disordered ideas of one who was no longer master of himself. Go, Rotsko, he cried for the last time. You wish me to? I do. At this formal injunction, Rotsko could but obey, particularly as Franz had begun to leave him and the darkness hid him from view. Rotsko remained a few moments where he was, unable to decide on going away. Then the idea occurred to him that the Count's efforts would be in vain that he would not be able to enter the castle, nor to even get through the outer wall. 
that he would be compelled to return to the village of Vulcan, perhaps next morning, perhaps that night. The two of them would then go to Carlsberg, and what neither of them could do alone would be done by the police. They would settle with this Baron de Gortz, they would rescue the unfortunate Lestilla, they would search this castle the Carpathians, they would not leave one stone upon another, if necessary, even if all the fiends imaginable united to defend it. And Rothko descended the slopes of the Orgal Plateau so as to return to the Vulcan Road. Following the edge of the counterscarp, Franz had already gone round the bastion which flanked it to the left. A thousand thoughts crowded in his mind. There was now no doubt about the presence of the Baron de Gortz in the castle, for Lestilla was a prisoner therein. It could only be the Baron. Lestilla alive! But how could Franz get to her? How could he get her out of the castle? He did not know, but it must be done, and it would be done. The obstacles which Nick Deck could not overcome, he would overcome. It was not curiosity which had brought him among these ruins. It was love for the woman he had found alive. Yes, alive. After believing her to be dead, he would rescue her from Rodolphe de Gortz. Doubtless, Franz had said to himself that he could only obtain admission to the interior by means of the south curtain, in which the gate opened opposite the drawbridge, and seeing that it was impossible for him to scale the high walls, he continued to skirt the crest of the Orgal Plateau as soon as he had turned the angle of the bastion. In broad daylight, there would not have been much difficulty in this. At night, the moon was not yet up, a night all the darker from the mists which thicken on the mountains. It was more dangerous. To the danger of a false step, to the danger of a fall to the bottom of the ditch, was added that of stumbling against the rocks and perhaps causing them to fall over. Franz went on, however, keeping as near as possible to the zigzags of the counterscarp, feeling his way hand and foot to make sure he was not going astray. Sustained by superhuman strength, he also felt himself guided by an extraordinary instinct that could not deceive him. Beyond the bastion stretched the south wall, that with which the drawbridge established communication when it was not raised against the gate. When the bastion was passed, obstacles appeared to multiply. Among the huge rocks which covered the plateau, to follow the counterscarp was impossible, and he had to leave it. Figure a man endeavoring to traverse a field of Karnak, in which the dolmens and menhirs were on no plan, whatever and not a mark to guide him, not a ray of light in the dark night. Franz kept on, here climbing over a rock which barred his way, there creeping along the rocks, his hands torn with the thistles and brushwood, his head skimmed by a pair of ospreys, disturbed in their resting places and flying off, uttering their horrible scream. Ah, why did not the chapel bell clang as it had clanged for Nick Deck and the doctor? Why did not the intense light which had enveloped them stream up from beneath the battlements of the dungeon? He would have headed towards the sound, he would have made towards the light, as the sailor towards the siren's whistle or the lighthouse rays. No, nothing but deep night boarded his view a few yards away. This lasted for nearly an hour. When the ground began to slope to the left, Franz felt he was going wrong. Perhaps he had gone lower than the gate. Perhaps he was beyond the drawbridge. He stopped, stamping his foot and wringing his hand. Which way should he go? Ah, how angry he was when he thought he would have to wait for the daylight but then he would be seen by the people in the castle. He could not take them by surprise. Rodolphe de Gortz would be on his guard. It was in the nighttime that he must get into the enclosure, and Franz could not find his way in the darkness. A cry escaped him, a cry of despair. Stilla, he cried, my Stilla. Did he think that the prisoner could hear him, that she could reply to him? And yet a score of times he shouted the name, and the echoes of Plesa repeated it. Suddenly, Franz's eyes were on alert. A ray of light pierced the darkness, a dazzling ray and its source was of considerable elevation. There is the castle, there, he said, and from his position, the light could only come from the central dungeon. In his mental excitement, Franz did not hesitate to believe that it was Lestilla who showed him this light. 
There could be no doubt she had recognized him at the moment he had perceived her through the battlement of the bastion. And now she it was who had given the signal and showed him the road to follow to reach the gate. Franz went toward the light, which increased with every step he took. As he had gone too far to the left on the plateau, he had to go back about twenty yards to the right, and after a few trials, he regained the edge of the counterscarp. The light shone in his face, and its height showed that it came from one of the windows of the dungeon. Franz was about to find himself faced by the last obstacle, insurmountable perhaps. In fact, if the gate were shut, the drawbridge raised, he would have to go down to the foot of the wall, and what would he do then, where it was fifty feet high in front of him? Franz went on toward the place where the drawbridge would rest if the gate were open. The drawbridge was down. Without even stopping to think, Franz rushed onto the bridge and laid his hand on the gate. The gate opened. Franz rushed under the dark arch, but before he had taken a dozen steps, the drawbridge was raised with a clatter against the gate. Count Franz de Telec was a prisoner in the castle of the Carpathians. End of chapter 12